Hello, everyone, and welcome. This is your host, Molly Rowan Leach, of Restorative Justice on the Rise, sponsored by the Peace Alliance. Our mission is to provide a platform for education, connection, and dialogue in the field of restorative justice and beyond. This archive features an empowering and and powerful conversation with Kathy Kelly. Kathy is the co-founder and co-coordinator of Voices for Creative Nonviolence. Her book, Other Lands Have Dreams, From Baghdad to Pekin Prison, is internationally renowned. She also was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize by the American Friends Service Committee. We hope that you'll check out the work of Voices for Creative Nonviolence. They offer some incredible programs. For more about them, go to www.vcnv.org. For more about Restorative Justice on the Rise and this ongoing free international webcast and telecouncil series, and to access all of the archives, go to dopeace.us. That's D-O-P-E-A-C-E. We look forward to seeing you in the future, and thank you for your participation on Restorative Justice on the Rise. Good evening, everybody, and such a warm welcome to you tonight, wherever you're dialing, Skyping, or webcasting in worldwide. This is Molly Rowan Leach, and I'm your host for the ongoing series, Restorative Justice on the Rise. This is a virtual council of sorts that welcomes your active participation, and we often open up for live questions and certainly questions from the webcast as well. If you have any questions about this series and you want to make contact with us, um, we welcome that. We welcome your feedback. We welcome your questions. We want to make sure that we're providing a platform via this extraordinary media of uh, virtual technology to create connections, um, educate, um, tell stories, raise awareness around the transformation of justice and peace building and creative nonviolent work in our world that's happening right now. There's a huge transition that we're amidst, um, and many people have been been tirelessly working towards it, including our extraordinary guest tonight, whom I will introduce to uh, us all in just a moment. Probably many of you already know who she is. Just a few words about where to access that contact information and all the archives of this series that's in its second season. You can find it at dopeace.us, that's D-O-P-E-A-C-E dot U-S. Please make sure to explore the, the uh, menu that's there on the left, uh, excuse me, the right-hand top corner of the website. It says Restorative Justice. And if you drop down, that menu has a bunch of different aspects to it. It has archives. It has upcoming speakers. It also has related events like conferences um, in the the country as well as worldwide. And it has a resource section. And we hope to continue to build that for all of you to know that you can come at at any time and freely access the incredible library of archives and beyond. 
Now tonight's call, just like every time that we convene, every Thursday, 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, we'll be um, inviting your participation. And to do that, you simply have to press 1 on your telephone keypad. And if you're Skyping in, you can do the same and that should work. It'll signal us that you, you have a question or comment. So without further ado, I, I'm incredibly honored that we have with us tonight Kathy Kelly. And Kathy, uh, it's, it's almost hard to, in a nutshell, share the extraordinary service that she's brought through her in this world, but I'll make an attempt um, to first of all just say that her book, Other Lands Have Dreams, From Baghdad to Pekin Prison, um, it's, it's an incredible journey and I highly recommend it for anybody who would like to hear authentic, on-the-ground capsules of, of some of the most important points in our world around the justice movement, around peace building, and nonviolent resistance to the things that are happening in our world. Um, Studs Terkel says about Kathy, she is a direct descendant of Dorothy Day, who when asked why she was making so much trouble for the authorities, answered simply, I'm working toward a world in which it would be easier for people to behave decently. She's also the co-coordinator for Voices for Creative Nonviolence, which is a, an organization founded in 2005 and has a deep long-standing root in active nonviolent resistance to U.S. war making. Uh, Voices draws upon the experiences of those who challenge the brutal economic sanctions imposed by the U.S. and U.N. against the Iraqi people between 1990 and 2003. She's also uh, a nominee for the Nobel, uh, 2000 Nobel Peace Prize by the American Friends Service Committee. They say, the work of Kathleen Kelly represents a comprehensive approach to the problem of economic sanctions against Iraq and the devastation wrought on the population of that country, particularly the children. So I'm, I'm bowing to you, Kathy, and I'm welcoming you on behalf of the Peace Alliance and all these incredible people that gather on these calls every week. Welcome. Well, thank you, Molly. Thank you very much for having me on the call, and uh, greetings to all the people that are joining you tonight. I wondered if we might start out tonight, Kathy, um, this series really highlights the stories that bring people into this work. Usually what we, we start out with is what, what brought you into not only what you're doing now with Voices for Creative Nonviolence, but what was the, the sparking impetus or, or maybe a few pieces that, that, that really catalyzed you into what you are doing? Well, my, my shorthand version for myself is that I just fall in love very easily, I think, and, and really have fallen in love with people who have extended tremendous hospitality and uh, shared insight with I and other companions, even as they are trapped in war zones. And uh, that seems to have been um, part of what, what I can sort of um, help to amplify or give voice to. Uh, the, the, the experience of being alongside people who, who have nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, and are bearing the brunt of wars. And, and so being able to say, you know, where you stand 
determines uh, what you see and offer that perspective of, of people who, who mean us no harm, who are uh, people who, as adults, love their children just as people here love their children. Um, the, the children are wide-eyed and brilliant and fun and friendly quite often, and and yet um, their lives are uh, considered to be perhaps worth much less than U.S. lives in the eyes of people who design and carry on war after war after war. Hmm. And tell us a little bit more about um, what what kind of things that Voices for Creative Nonviolence, what, what are you doing currently? What Just flesh out a little bit more about the, the mission. And Well, we were um, very disappointed. Probably, I think, the greatest disappointment in our adult lives for quite a, a strong group of people who tried hard to end the economic sanctions against Iraq is that we didn't succeed. Those sanctions continued year after year after year, and you know you'd be in a hospital in a pediatrics ward, and and my friend Martin Thomas, a nurse from the UK, looked at the ward and he said, "I think I understand. It's a death row for infants, isn't it?" And and Martin was right. None of those children would leave. Their mothers would only carry the bodies of their children who died to cemeteries, and these children were punished. They were punished to death. Um, because of a government that they obviously couldn't possibly control. So um, we stayed in Iraq during the shock and awe bombing, and then upon return to the United States, um, tried to accompany refugees who were fleeing from Iraq as best we could. Um, many were living in Jordan in pretty wretched conditions. Uh, eventually, the United States upped the quota of people who could come to the United States, so we didn't really have to travel very far to meet Iraqis. If we were living in big cities, um, Iraqi refugees were moving into cities. But um, our friend Kathy Breen has continued to accompany people who are uh, facing grave obstacles. She was in Syria for quite some time interacting with refugees and then uh, plans to go back actually to Iraq on May 2nd. A number of us have wanted to understand the 21st century military and the 21st century ways of warfare better and understand that from, again, the point of view of people who are bearing the brunt of that war. And even though it's a war that's gone on for a long time, I'm speaking of the war in Afghanistan, uh, we felt that the usage of drone warfare in conjunction with the special operations forces I'm thinking of the Marine Rangers, the Green Berets, the Navy SEALs. These are some of the most uh, well-trained and frightening, maybe even menacing warriors on the planet. And in the 21st century warfare, these special operations forces, a kind of slimmed down number of U.S. troops, but by no means a departing U.S. force, will be working in conjunction with the drone surveillance and drone warfare and combat brigade unit helicopters to wage warfare in the places where they're deployed. And that will certainly be Afghanistan at least until 2025. General Allen recently said the fighting will continue through 2015 for certain. And so we've been going over to Pakistan and Afghanistan and getting to know people um, who have survived drone attacks, mm. uh, who have been eyewitnesses to drone attacks, 
And in Afghanistan, um, we became the guests of the Afghan Peace Volunteers and have, much to our joy and gratitude, learned a great deal about practical ways to live together communally by moving in with youngsters who are from different ethnic backgrounds and tribes and are trying mightily to live together communally and to communicate that they want to live without wars. They're just a brilliant group. So I'll leave on May, well, April 29th to um, connect with them and stay with them for a month. And a team is there right now living with them uh, pretty much throughout the year. Some Westerners are in the home that Voices is able to rent in Kabul, uh, giving them a place to stay because uh, one of the consequences of their very determined and brave action in the central highlands of the Bamiyan province in Afghanistan is that uh, death threats were issued. And so they moved to Kabul, and several of them are going to school, and they're operating um, space for a seamstress cooperative and for tutoring for little children. And uh, they're the, they themselves are learning Pashto. It's a really brilliant and exciting project. Mm. And they also uh, teamed up with the seamstresses, distributed 2,000 duvets last winter during the harsh, cold Afghan winter. You know, 100 people had frozen to death in January of 2012, so they wanted to do their best to contribute toward protecting people from the harsh weather in 2013. Kathy, do you think that um, one of the greatest challenges that we have in our world today might be uh, perhaps quite a simple one, in fact, in that really what, I mean, what strikes me with your work um, and, and moves me so deeply is there's quite a few things, of course, but but one of the facets is that you're providing a window of humanity and a reflection of cause and effect um, that seems so critical for people who seem to be a bit agog and um, kind of sleepwalking through our uh, privilege in in North America. And I wonder, what does it take for us to to really understand the, you know, the, the true cause and effect that, that war visits upon you know, not only children, but, but just I mean, the, the circles and the ripples that it creates for people that may not be in our backyard, but certainly are um, human beings with common, you know, common, common purposes, common hearts. What is it going to take for us to wake up? Well, I think um, people generally have very good hearts and uh, a great deal of compassion. I think empathy gets limited, though, because uh, there are some pretty manipulative reports that are um, fed to the U.S. public about the places where the United States goes to war. Um, And and we see this really with uh, consistency. Uh, I wonder, Molly, if you might remember, I'm going back quite a bit in history, but in 1990, I think most Americans um, didn't quite know where Iraq was Mm -hmm. or why Iraq would be a threat to the United States. Mm -hmm. And a a young teenager, a Kuwaiti teenager, appeared on C-SPAN, and she was tearfully describing how Iraqi soldiers had burst into a Kuwaiti hospital and looted the incubators and dumped the babies out to die. And her tearful testimony created outrage, and people said, well, you know, you've got to stop people from doing these kinds of things. 
And um, George Bush Sr. Uh, quoted young Nayera in his State of the Union address. Well, it turned out six months after the United States had invaded Iraq, had wiped out the electricity all across Iraq, making it impossible for any Iraqi incubators to function, it turned out that the story was a hoax. Nayera had never left the United States. She had been uh, the daughter of a Kuwaiti diplomat and was coached by the Hill and Knowlton public relations firm to help market the war. And then it just goes on and on in terms of the war against Iraq. You know, we were told to be very afraid of the weapons of mass destruction, and then we found out all 39 instances didn't exist. Not true. Didn't happen. We were uh, coached to think only one person lived in Iraq, Saddam Hussein. And people Mm -hmm. seldom in the mainstream media, very seldom ever, got even one half of one sentence about the United Nations alarms over hundreds of thousands of children dying because of economic sanctions. So then we move into the shock and awe bombing, and and, mm. and the, the attitude was, well, U.S. people should be grateful because the United mm. States got rid of Saddam Hussein. And never do we hear that even by 2006, 600,000 Iraqis had died while the U.S. was the occupying power as civil war raged and as the U.S. had no ability to restore infrastructure or bring control to the chaotic very chaotic situation the U.S. had introduced. And, you know, the same thing happens with Afghanistan. People think, well, we're there to help women and children, aren't we? Uh, We're protecting them from the Taliban, aren't we? But, you know, President Karzai, the United States uh, has propped up President Karzai's regime. He has actually, because he's so beholden to Taliban warlords, he's had to put into codified law uh, stipulations that women are not equal to men in the university, in the workplace, or even in their own home. If a woman disobeys her husband in her own home, she's disobeying Afghan law now, and that's what happened under Gartzai recently. One out of every 11 women in Afghanistan dies in childbirth, a torturous, terrible way to die. One out of every five children doesn't make it beyond the age of five. Some are saying maybe that's one out of every four now. So, you know, we're spending $2 billion a week to Mm -hmm. maintain United States troop presence, $1 million per soldier (laughs) per year. And meanwhile, right across the street from sprawling, huge U.S. military bases where convoys all day long deliver food and fuel and clean water, right across the street there are horrible, wretched refugee camps where people don't have clean water, they certainly don't have fuel, they burn plastic and scavenge for whatever bits of garbage they can to try to bring heat into these hovels that they live in. They don't have latrines. They live as though they're not human. And yet, you know, the United States people would like to think that somehow we're waging a humanitarian war or at least when the United States keeps putting out those kinds of images. You know, they even used to tell people that the U.S. soldiers going out on night raids would read Greg Mortensen's books before they left. And so, you know, they're going on the night raid to collect the third cup of tea. I mean, what soldiers going out on night raids tornado through houses and they break furniture and they'll shoot the dog in the face and tie up the householder, hog tie him, and put him in a pickup truck and take them away for months and months of interrogations. These night raids are terrifying events. 
And this is what the United States troops are asked to do, and it might be why there are more suicides now than combat-related deaths amongst the veterans. So I think it's hard for U.S. people to speak up because there's kind of a vice-like grip on education, Mm -hmm. and the military is maintaining the grip. And and, and if the United States people can be convinced that somehow the U.S. troops are needed, you know, some responsibility to protect, then I think people will be very, very hesitant about speaking up. But if people knew, oh, my word, I don't think the sanctions would have withstood the light of day, and I don't think our wars of choice would persist. Do you think that, that um, there are media sources that, that are really um, counteracting that strong vice grip? That, uh, do, do you have any, I mean, I, I know that Amy Goodman might, might come to mind and Democracy Now!, but are there other media sources that you would recommend for people to tap into and, and also ways in which people can continue to counteract in their own very significant ways. I mean, sure. you, you've shown us that. You've, you've sat um, and been imprisoned for, for the principle of nonviolent resistance to these things your, yourself. So could yeah, you speak? I think it's good to identify where are your passions. And, of course, if you spread the peanut butter too thin, the bread rips. Um, you know, we can't take on every issue. But once someone knows that they really deeply care about a particular issue, then I think it becomes... Um, very clear where to find reliable, credible information. Uh, And sometimes it's within the mainstream. You know, I find that articles appear in the New York Review of Books and I'm underlining them and quoting them and Mm -hmm. glad that I read them. And sometimes the New York Times will do some pretty thorough reporting. But once you know a lot about an issue, then you can tell when uh, the, the reports are inadequate or when there's a certain bias being reflected. Uh, I find that the Internet is very helpful. Certainly Democracy Now!, uh, all of the people working for uh, Democracy Now!, and uh, Free Speech Radio, and Pacifica Radio programs, mm-hmm. um, they, and your programming too, it's, it's, it's essential. And I think that this is a kind of a heroic act, and people get very little compensation by and large. Um, and it's always good to keep on encouraging younger people to tune in Mm-hmm. through these sorts of sources. I'm sure that um, when college students discover Amy Goodman and Democracy Now!, they must think, wow, you know, this is, this is a, a learning experience mm-hmm. that we really need. Um, I think also uh, when people can connect with other people who are from the areas where the wars are being waged, this is a very, very important. I know delegations are expensive and sometimes a bit dangerous. Um, although I, I find that it's a way to come back and be able to, to kind of, you know, the question is, well, were you ever there? And, and you can say, well, as a matter of fact, yes. Uh, so I, I, I think um, often when people go to the places where the wars are being waged and get to know ordinary people, they, they don't want to walk away and say, well, you know, there's really not much we can do. <laughs> I think people want to hit the ground running and try to raise concerns amongst their communities, their co-workers, even maybe their families and friends. I think also, you know, there's plenty that we can learn from other countries. You know, I find that in the UK they have a very vibrant uh, Voices for Creative Nonviolence chapter going. And uh, we're often 
trying to learn from the different groups who join in a, on April every sorry every month on the 21st and certainly on this April 21st we have a Skype phone call globally with Global Days of Listening mm. and uh, people can go to that website globaldaysoflistening.com and sign up to be part of the call if they want to talk on the call or just listen as perhaps some of your listeners are doing tonight and we get a chance to hear from young people in Gaza, in Egypt, in um, sometimes the Democratic Republic of the Congo, refugees living in Australia. It's, it's really a very interesting uh, set of hours. Mm. And, uh, so I think to be able to hear from people who, mm-hmm. who want their voices to be heard, you know, they don't want mm-hmm. to be isolated. You know, I just have to add there um, for everybody listening. Uh, a quick way to access the next Global Day of Listening is also on the Voices for Creative Nonviolence website, which I highly encourage visitation to frequently. There's a lot going on. Um, that's V as in Victor, cnv.org, vcnv.org. And you just, uh, you'll see the next Global Day of Listening icon there. Click on it. It's right at the upper right-hand columnar area of the website, really easy to spot. Um, that's such a powerful program that you have. Has, has that been going on for a while, um, for years? Or is this... uh, that's how we first met the Afghan Peace Volunteers, actually. Wow. Um, we were fasting, a group of us, with the Witness Against Torture, and that's another very, very important effort right now. You know, there are men in their 77th day of a hunger strike in Guantanamo, and some are down to under 100 pounds. Uh, three are hospitalized. At least 11 are being force-fed. And they've been isolated in Guantanamo, held without charge, even though 86 of them are cleared for dismissal, uh, for release. And so um, we were fasting with the men in Guantanamo several years ago, and we found out that these youngsters in Afghanistan were joining the fast, and we couldn't believe it, you know. One of our friends at Pax Christi USA, Bob Cook, said, do you know that these kids in Afghanistan are outdoors in a tent in the cold weather uh, fasting with you? And we were sort of surprised. And he said, well, that's because you never read your email. And they want to have a Skype call with you. And, we, you know, we were not even sure what Skype was, to be honest. So um, Bob set it up, and we were so impressed. You know, we spoke with them through a translator, their mentor, Dr. Hakeem, who speaks seven languages, including English and their language, Dari. And we learned that they were such uh, fans, I suppose, of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, that when our friend Carmen Trotta had wanted to explain to them who Dr. King was, because it was Dr. King's birthday, they were all excited, wanted to decide which one of them would deliver a memorized quote from one of King's speeches. And this is when they were 13 and 14 years old. Now they're 17, 18, 19 years old. And they really are wonderful youngsters. And uh, that Global Days of Listening has been a great opportunity to connect with people. Also on our website, Molly, is a, a, I have to say, a kind of a macabre section. It's the Afghan Atrocities Update. And we've pledged to try our best to update a very, very tragic list of Mm -hmm. people who've been killed Mm -hmm. by United States and NATO forces, uh, unarmed civilians who've been killed. And and almost every week there's an update. 
sometimes it's a combat brigade unit helicopter that flies over a mountainside and mistakes people collecting fuel for fighters and just kills them, children and mothers. Sometimes it's a night raid, and, uh, you know, the, the attack uh, goes on in the middle of the night, and next thing you know, 11 civilians are killed. Sometimes it's a drone attack. And, you know, now it's to the point where these drone attacks can be programmed. You know, you don't even have to have a, a, a live person operating the computer. You, you can punch in the program coordinates and a, an, an unmanned mm -hmm. aerial vehicle mm -hmm. with weapons on the belly of the vehicle will fly over an area and fire those weapons into homes, into mosques, into schools, into gardens. Uh, so we've tried to hear from the people who've borne the brunt of that kind of warfare in Afghanistan. Mm. That, and that interlinks with the one of the strong cores, again, of, of, of your work, and that's um, providing a window of truth and connecting it to those of us, um, again, that may not be directly neighbors with, with these 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 um, brothers and sisters of ours all over the world that are affected so tragically and deeply by, by what's happening. And I, I wonder still about this um, personal responsibility, the path that we take, um, that there's, like you were saying, there's this, this counterforce vice grip that's so strong, as it seems, in the United States that as you were saying, there are so many compassionate hearts. There's so many great people in this, in this country. What is it that keeps us kind of with our blinders on, our noses to the grindstone, stone, so to speak? And then, of course, you provide, again, an example of, I, I mean, um, I know you probably don't want to be idolized or made into a hero, per se, but certainly you've provided an example of extreme courage of putting your own life on the line, of um, providing a selfless example of balking a system, of refusing to pay taxes, and to, you know, to do it for purpose. Why, why is it so difficult for so many of us to not fo follow in, the, in that um, uh, with your lead and, and others who have done the same thing? Well, I think that Many people are afraid to rock the boat because they sense that the, their own personal economy is tied into mm -hmm. either the military-industrial complex or increasingly this security-industrial complex. You know, right now that's where the jobs are. It doesn't have to be that way. It, it doesn't make any sense for it to be that way. Um, many more jobs would be created if a, a, an amount of money invested in creating military products to kill people was instead invested in things that are good for people like you know building mass transit systems and um, being able to cope with environmental changes and retrofitting the housing stock and care for elderly and care for children. There's so many things that are good for people that could be done and would create many, many more jobs. Uh, a Massachusetts uh, Amherst study said that there could be as many as 4,000 new jobs, more new jobs, generated if the amounts of money that we put into the military were instead put into non-military, industrial, and um, economic pursuits. 
So but that's not happening, and the lobbies for the military are extreme. Similarly, with the prison industrial complex, uh, and I know that restorative justice can tell us a lot about alternatives, mm. but so many jobs are tied up now with prison construction, prison maintenance, wardens, guards, security industries, security contractors going over to other countries. And every university every year graduates a whole new group of lawyers. And how are you going to keep them all employed? Prisoners. And so the war on drugs gets factored in there. Um, I know it can seem overwhelming, but I do think that's one of the problems. People sense that if they rock the boat, it might affect them economically. And then, of course, the other thing is people want security. But Mm -hmm. I think our security is jeopardized when we're viewed as a menacing and a fearful force Mm -hmm. in other parts of the world where Mm. where people feel like the United States is unjust and it it, gives $3 billion a year to Israel that has 200 to 400 thermonuclear weapons and will never allow an inspection. And then, you know, the, the, the very real threat that we face is the threat of what we're doing to our own environment, and yet we, we can't deal with it because so much of our money goes into weapons and weapon production and weapon uh, distribution. So it's kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. Well, let's take a pause for just a moment. Um, just, if you're just joining us, welcome. We're talking with Kathy Kelly, who is the author of Other Lands Have Dreams, from Baghdad to Pekin Prison, and she's also the co-coordinator of Voices for Creative Nonviolence. You can find out a whole bunch of wonderful information, really important stuff here, at vcnv.org. That's vcnv.org. And as Kathy was saying a little while ago, they have a wonderful program called the Global Day of Listening which is a way to talk with people from Afghanistan, Iraq, Palestine, Israel, Egypt, Yemen, and other countries, hearing their stories and getting a chance to to correspond with them directly. Um, So just want to open up, too, to our council tonight. If you have a question or a comment for the second half of our time together, please press 1 on your telephone or Skype keypad. Uh, I'll open up the lines now and certainly field questions as we go. So that's an open invitation for the rest of our time together. And Kathy, um, you were just uh, just now getting into the prison industrial complex. And of course, as you know, this series, Restorative Justice on the Rise, um, we, we certainly want to talk about the truth and bring the truth to light. We do that often. We also uh, frame our attention deeply around the incredible rise of people working on the ground diligently in restorative justice practices. And in fact, just this morning, um, our Peace Alliance team has, has gotten together with people on the ground here in Colorado to do advocacy work and to encourage um, legislation and uh, in, in this case, House Bill 131254, which is the second bill of its kind, um, hopefully going into law here shortly in Colorado. Um, Representative Pete Lee is one of the sponsors. And it, it just appears to me that, that, you know, again, this personal responsibility, I loved how you framed putting, um, you know, identifying as individuals how, what our passion is, what we, what really um, we can't not do, 
and putting that where you know put, trying to give give all of our attention or at least what we can give to that place and I just want to say that's that's kind of where I sit with um, you know with this program and what what I've found um, my own mother sits in prison she has for 14 years in the state of Idaho and so I have an interesting view of what it's like to be within um, a prison and to you know watch the nuances of of that cycle of violence that that occurs and yet here we are perched in a place where we we're seeing a fast rise of people calling for restorative justice so I just want to um, I know I'm taking a bit here but I want to read from your book because of course you've been incarcerated you've had experiences uh, many of them within the walls of prisons and uh, you've interviewed women um, inmates and you have incredible insights in this book I want to read from page 133 which um, is under the heading are there alternatives you write in June 2004 you say, before asking whether we should change the prison system, perhaps we must ask, is there even a hope that we could build a movement to do it? No one has publicly processed the social pain caused by locking up 2.1 million people. And yet each prisoner has relatives and friends who would welcome the idea that the U.S. prison system was not an absolute necessity. If organized, such groups could become a significant voting block joined by practitioners of nonviolence who refuse to accept the current arrangements, they could collectively ask a question nearly always posed by reformers and revolutionists. Are the current arrangements absolutely necessary or are they contrived? Could you, could you share a bit more about what, what, what that means to you? It's such a powerful paragraph. <laughs> you know, I, I will acknowledge that uh, when one is in a county jail and women come into the county jails and maybe their lives have become very, very chaotic, maybe some have been addicted to a substance, um, maybe they've gotten in over their heads in um, the drug trade, um, the, the women are in need of help and they maybe need some time out away from their families and, and, and they need uh, sometimes to go through some kind of physical uh, healing. So, so that, that may be a necessity. It's not contrived to say that, 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 that um, I've met women who, who felt like they were danger to themselves and to others. But uh, once that healing takes place, once people's lives settle down, I've seen it happen again and again. People are restored to their normal personality before they started to get into addictive patterns or to become abusers of drugs or to become drug sellers. And they, there is no way that the women that I've met in prison require 15, 20 years of isolation from their families, from their communities. In fact, the, uh, the punishment increases the likelihood that when women are released, they'll be so bereft, they'll be so institutionalized that they won't be able to handle um, taking initiative and acting independently because that gets kind of 
uh, nullified when you spend year after year after year in a federal or a state prison. So um, I I think the, the length of sentencing is the most onerous aspect of the current prison criminal justice system. When I was last in a minimum security prison, it was called Pekin. Uh, my sentence was three months. It was like a revolving door. But when I'd be in the library, you could sort of like press your nose against the window and see across a field to the medium to high security prison for men. And the median sentence at that prison was 27 years. So young men would step off of a bus shackled by their ankles and manacled wrists, and they will be grandfathers before they ever leave that prison. And this has caused a $2 billion rise in poverty. Mm. Uh, in, uh, I'm sorry, I'm, please forgive me. A 20% rise in poverty. A recent New York Times article mm-hmm. said that had the, the trend toward mass incarceration not happened, the poverty rate would be 20% less than, than it is now in the United States. And the ramifications, the repercussions of locking up so many hundreds of thousands of people and many of them, people that are impoverished, who, who've already been punished by just the, the way that the system discriminates against people who are born into economically underprivileged situations. Uh, they've already been punished by not having access to decent schools or health care or jobs. Uh, and then the punishment uh, turns the women that I've met into people who form a community that is a world of imprisoned beauty. They are such beautiful and wonderful people that I've met in prison, and yet they're uh, cast away. Mm. Wow. The the just in thinking about the future and in thinking about the present moment, I, you know, I appreciate the fact that in many cases, of course, the um, the, the, there's things that we could bring forward from the system that has been in motion, many of which those things that we can leave behind, but certainly there's an aspect of healing, of, um, of making right what, uh, what has occurred, and there's, in the punitive way, such an isolating effect, um, especially you know, with the victims in mind, first and foremost, um, and whether or not they, you know, some may not even be interested in, in um, dialoguing with the, the person who caused the crime or conflict. But uh, what are the things that you see or would suggest, you know, as ways that we can move forward transforming this system of justice away from the the, the the pieces that reciprocate the violence, that reciprocate um, high recidivism, into a more nonviolent approach. What is that gonna? What's that gonna take? Well, the number one step would be to recognize what are the greatest threats to us as a society, and the greatest threats are posed by those who manufacture nuclear weapons, um, the, those who are the uh, profiteers from the manufacture of guns and ammunition of uh, alcohol, firearms, tobacco. Uh, I think the, uh, the car industry is another major threat to life and well-being because of the rate of accidents. And of course, the pollution in our society is a huge threat. So 
So we should recognize where the greatest threats come from. Now, I never want to see you know, corporate heads locked up. I wouldn't mind seeing them rehabilitated, but I, mm-hmm. I think we have to question you know, who goes to jail and why. Mm-hmm. And then I think with the money that we would free up and the resources, the ingenuity, the skills, if we pulled the plug on the U.S. military and all of its criminal activity uh, caused through waging wars all around the world that are uh, creating mayhem and disaster and bloodshed and spiraling rates of violence. Okay, take that sum of money, you know, $2 billion a week spent on the uh, the war in Afghanistan, $800,000 uh, to keep one prisoner in Guantanamo for one year. Take those funds and put them into neighborhoods with the intent of developing decent education and decent jobs and decent health care and decent nutrition. And this could make a huge, huge difference. Mm. Do you know the way that they determine how many beds will be needed in a prison in uh, areas around Chicago is by looking at IQ scores? Right. Yeah, that that study just blew me away. And of course, the um, the private you, you mentioned briefly the the prison industrial companies, um, Geo Group is one of them. The Correctional Corporations of America is another. Combined profits of of five billion in fiscal year 2012, and uh, Geo Group actually sent out uh, a memo to state prisons speaking of, of filling beds and creating more, um, to buy out state prisons with um, the stipulation that they would keep at least 90% of the beds full and sign a contract for 20 years. I believe it was 20 years. So um, the good news is, though, a recent victory certainly was made. Um, many of you may know this, and Kathy, I think it's worth mentioning here, that um, the Geo Group tried to buy the naming rights to a football stadium at Florida Atlantic University. Um, So just to show the power of the people's voice, what happened in the wake of that, uh, there was a a million, you know, I think five or six million dollar donation that was going to go through to Florida Atlantic University to put the Geo Group on their football stadium, you know, kind of like, uh, you know, other fields do all over this country in that way. And um, there was such an uproar. And the Peace Alliance even had a Huffington Post blog that we did uh, that got uh, incredible response. And and, um, Jesse Lava over at Beyond Bars did something. Um, We we did petitions. You know, lots of people were were just in an uproar, including the students themselves at Florida Atlantic University. And so the result of that was that uh, that deal got pulled back and dissolved. They withdrew their donation. Um, Unfortunately, it appears that the uh, school's president still holds the opinion that it could have been a good thing. But all in all, you know, that that was a victory for the people's voices, I believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's very good to hear. And, you know, I I also want to emphasize that... um, if you think about the numbers of people who are affected uh, whenever one person is incarcerated or is caught up in the criminal justice system, 
uh, it's always worthwhile to think about ways to dramatize the uh, numbers of people, you know, to think about walks between prisons, to think about vigils, to think about um, ways to um, build support networks for people who, whose loved ones are imprisoned. Uh, there, there's tremendous work that's being done to try and shut down small new franchised um, prisons for people that are undocumented. And uh, actually, people were successful in Crete, Illinois, in saying, nope, we don't want a prison built in our town. We don't need the prison. Those aren't the jobs we want. Now, I think the uh, powers that be are going to try to build a prison in another small town. But then people should keep organizing, keep on making themselves visible and present, and people feel better about themselves when they stand up and exercise their right to free speech. Mm-hmm. Well, and a lot of those people are members of this council and live with us tonight and on the webcast. I just want to acknowledge the incredible backgrounds um, of the people that come here every week to join in these councils. And, and uh, we, we are making a difference. It's very clear. Even though it may seem like a mountain, it begins with that proverbial first step. Uh, I'd like to, to field a question from the webcast. Um, it comes from Conchetta. Thank you, Conchetta, for your question. Oh, well, there's somebody who does some of the finest work. <laughs> the finest work in shutting down these franchises and in being um, really vigilant in the best way, mm. uh, Conchetta, uh, in terms of being aware both of legislative action but also of uh, creative and dynamic um, outreach. And she's never uh, failed us anytime we've done an action locally here in Chicago. So hello, Conchetta. Wonderful. And thank you again, Conchetta. Um, she asks, do you see restorative justice on the rise in other countries in their youth communities or in the educational systems? And if I might humbly add to that, Conchetta, I'd be curious to hear um, just, you know, what just in general is happening around justice, period, in, in the world. Because you have, I'm, I'm guessing you as well, Conchetta, have a view like Kathy does that is so valuable to, to bring back a window to all of us here in, in the, the so-called Western world. Mm. Well, you know, there's a wonderful man, Javier Cecilia, in Mexico, and his son was killed by uh, drug lords. They uh, kidnapped his son, and, and the son was working in healthcare, healthcare delivery, and working to help people who were addicted to drugs. And um, Javier Cecilia believes that the war on drugs in Mexico had actually created spiraling rates of violence. And so he began these caravans of condolence. And people would uh, line up their cars and they'd crisscross various areas of Mexico and um, come together in their grief. And they're, they're looking for another means of justice other than the military attacks against the uh, narco traffickers. They're, they're looking for ways to uh, address impoverishment as a main cause of the vulnerability to the drug trade. Anyway, he has gone across Mexico, and last uh, autumn he came across the United States with his caravan, and 
our global exchange helped sponsor it, and there were many, many, many young people involved. And the young people I know in Afghanistan had been invited to come and join it. They were so excited; they thought they'd be able to do it, but the U.S. wouldn't issue the visas. Um, but I think that there, you know, like in Afghanistan, 65% of the population are under 25 years of age. Some even say Australian age says under 18 years of age. So that's more than half of the population are so very young, and, and they're the ones who are the stakeholders, of course, in the future. So it makes sense, all the sense in the world, for young people to seek alternatives to these security industrial complexes, to the massive incarceration, and to the so-called justice systems uh, inflicting uh, the likelihood of ongoing poverty because of uh, sentencing and uh, the prohibition against drugs. I mean, if you prohibit uh, marijuana, for instance, then it, it increases the likelihood that there will be court cases and imprisonments based on uh, people being able to make a ter terrific profit off of the sale of marijuana. So, so Javier Cecilia and the young people who are with him are saying, uh, decriminalize the drug trade. Mm-hmm. Elijah also asks a question, um, and I think it's an important one. It's very simple. Elijah, thank you for your webcast question. Um, he's, he or she is calling in from, from Canada, it looks like. We're really glad to have you here tonight with us. Um, the question is, is, is there any hope, considering you know all of the... Um, bad people in our world. Mm. Well, you know, um, there have been movements that have made significant gains. I think of the civil rights movement, the women's movement, the gay movement, the LGBT movement, the um, movements to uh, make smoking a very unpopular thing to do. There, there have been gains that we've seen in our time, and you know, when you think of the massive slaughter of World War One and World War Two in Europe, uh, the insanity of all of that is just bloodshed and slaughter for all those years. I think, you know, we can look in, at France and Germany and be pretty confident they're not going to attack each other as countries. And so sometimes I think it is possible to to imagine uh, that, that that human beings could evolve. We, we we need to evolve much more quickly at a much more accelerated pace than we are doing. I know that. Mm. But I think it's possible to imagine it when we look at some of the gains that have been made. And I think also um, a very important ingredient is education. And I'm seeing more and more uh, peace education happening in pretty dynamic ways in a lot of the uh, faith-based institutions, in a lot of the state institutions for, for higher learning, so much more could happen. But it, it is starting to develop, I think. So um, I guess one feeling I have, Eliza, is that um, I've never met a mother whose child is dying in a war zone who can afford our despair. Mm. So despair doesn't seem to me to be even an option. Uh, but, but when I think about uh, young energy 
and the idealism that always infuses young groups of people, I, I, I tend to feel some considerable optimism. The, the Occupy movement was so interesting because mm-hmm. you know, within 12 weeks they had globalized that logo, 99 and 1, and they had people all around the world mm. thinking hard about the idea that 1% of the population's control inordinate amounts of wealth and so people keep thinking about those things and I want that thing tie it in with the military industrial complex and the security industrial complex and you know don't be I I think um, courage is the ability to control our fears and we catch courage from one another Mm, that is so beautifully put it's so interesting too to see um, I'm I'm very much hoping that the the Occupy movement comes comes back reignited and have wondered do, do you have any thoughts about that 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 piece well I think the coming... movement is going to arise again it may not so much resemble what it has been mm-hmm. and it may not be coming you know directly from the west I don't think we've seen the end of the Arab Spring I know that there's bloodshed and there's corruption and um, a lot of disappointments uh, in Egypt, for instance, uh, after Tahrir Square had shown the world so much vitality. But I think that uh, we'll still have more to learn. You know, um, the world came closer than ever before to stopping a war before it started mm-hmm. in the run-up to the mm-hmm. 2003 war. And just imagine if all those hundreds of thousands of people who turned out to protest that war had said, and you know what? We're sitting down and we're not going home, as mm-hmm. people did in Tahrir Square. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking for some um, time when a massive number of people will say, we cannot cooperate any longer. We just can't with the death dealing and narrow-minded stupidity of our war-driven states. And, you know, it's like a train is going to go over the abyss and we're all supposed to sit in the observation car and say, you know, don't stop, we like the view or something. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. So I think when when adults start to, you know, shoulder their adult responsibility, and especially people who love children. Mm-hmm. You know, I've noticed grandparents tend to love their children. Did you notice that? <laughs> and mm-hmm. their grandchildren. Mm. So, you know, if we really love these grandchildren, then we've got to start taking responsibility. You can't expect the six-year-old to sort it out to really stand up to the war profiteers, to the war mongers, people making war against the planet mm. and Mother Earth. Whew. And find kindred spirits mm-hmm. that we can, you know, enjoy being with, and and let that be the call, the real reason for being. And some of it is, uh, some of our difficulty in doing that is sometimes because of these incredible distractions with sports and entertainment. It's just, it's a bit over the top, isn't it? It sure is, and I I just I also think that we we each probably have our own struggle perhaps and perhaps transformation around our basic needs and a a fear perhaps of committing our lives um, you know thinking that that we can't afford it or or, um, we have a family to feed and you know these are all legitimate fears that we we might have and yet I've I personally have found it very interesting that the more I commit to restorative justice in my case the more the universe supports me. I mean, in the form of cash money, in the form of contributions, in the form of, of meeting people, um, you know, that, that fall into place 
um, to to support this work even more. And I'm guessing that that is probably very much the case for you and for the work that you've done over the years. And I would encourage that um, in all of our hearts and all of our courage to continue to, to know that you know, we each have a unique spark and a unique place where we belong. And there's no doubt about that. And we have power. Um, and we've been told we don't. And so <laughs> it's a matrix, but it's, it's not one that is um, the, one that we cannot overcome, and especially together, as you're saying. Um, and it's a wonderful chance to live more simply and share resources. Yes, absolutely. Well, Kathy, I, I just want to, um, I, wanna, I know we're getting close to closing here tonight, and it's just been such an honor to have you with us. And uh, an hour goes by so quickly with these councils, and there's so much more we could explore together. But I really want to also encourage, if, you, if council participants, if you haven't read the book, other lands have dreams. Please, by all means, pick up a copy. It's an extraordinary read. Um, it's a real map of all these experiences that we've touched on and, and so much more tonight in such detail. And um, it's also a resource guide. In the back, there's, there's some wonderful resources to tap into. And of course, the, the series of conversations, the, the Global Day of Listening, series is at vcnv.org as well as the atrocities in Afghanistan and so many other resources at your website for Voices for Creative Nonviolence. And I'd, I'd like to point out too that the Peace Alliance, besides doing work on the ground here in Colorado with restorative justice advocates and organizations as well as representatives, we have an incredible um, advocacy campaign around the Youth Promise Act, which is the youth prison reduction through opportunities, mentoring, intervention, support, and education. And that act um, has just garnered some incredible support from actor Will Smith, actor Cameron Diaz, Jamie Foxx, Michael Moore, and many other folks are getting behind the Youth Promise Act. And if you're not already on the mailing list for the Peace Alliance, you can easily um, tap into the resources there at the Peace Alliance website, sign up for the mailing list, get involved in the advocacy actions, and certainly um, stay tuned for what we're, we're doing here in the future on this ongoing series at thepeacealliance.org. That's thepeacealliance, all one word, dot .org. Dot .org. Um, and so interestingly, and in, in closing tonight, um, I just want to make one more announcement and then go back to you, Kathy, for just some closing thoughts. Um, next week's call on restorative justice on the rise is an interesting link to what we've covered tonight. Um, we have the extraordinary opportunity to discuss the life of the late photojournalist Tim Hetherington with the author of his biography. Alan Huffman will be our guest next week. Uh, I just returned from New York City um, on the invitation from uh, Sebastian Younger to come to the HBO um, premiere of the film 
in, um, in the city there that highlights uh, the work of, of uh, Younger and Hetherington and, um, you know, more than highlighting the work, celebrates a life of Hetherington who brought through him truth and connection as uh, an image maker. And, you know, would, he would often stay for much longer than, than the, the breaking of the story in places like Sierra Leone, Liberia, Sri Lanka, and Afghanistan. And so I just want to just make that link there that we'll be having that conversation next week. Please join us. Mm-hmm. And so Kathy, in closing tonight, I just um, would, would love to hear from you. Any, any thoughts about um, where we're going and, and the, the small steps that we each can take or any closing comments? Mm, well, thank you. I, I think the idea of having a council of people coming together is such a good idea. I really thank you for inviting me. I'm, I, I would have liked to have listened more, so I'll, I'll, I'll try to do that in the future. But taking, slowing down, taking time to see what direction we want to move forward in and to you know, ask ourselves what are the priorities that we want to take in order to build a better world. I think those are um, gifts you know, that we can give each other. Uh, and, I, and I really do mean it about courage being the ability to control our fears. Everybody feels fear. But um, I think if we can collectively uh, kind of recognize uh, that we're all part of one another and, um, and then look to find the sort of courage that's sometimes needed uh, to be able to challenge those who are willing to invest our precious and irreplaceable resources in new ways of killing one another. So to slow down and ask, how can we learn to live together without killing one another? And um, it makes sense, doesn't it? Mm. Absolutely. And it's, um, it's just you're, you're living service to that, that space of understanding is uh, it's beyond words I'm bowing to you in appreciation for what you've contributed for for you you've shown us uh, it, that it's possible as one human being to step out and for for love and for the common humanity that we share and for nonviolence thank you so much for being with us tonight Kathy and I hope that you all will join us in the near future next week again with Alan Huffman and on the behalf of the Peace Alliance and all of our friends all over the world this is restorative justice on the rise good night everyone good night and thank you Molly thank you <laughs>